All right, enough of that. (laughs) Just so you know, this... Let me see if I can... I just have to locate, locate them. So there's Jason right there, okay? Jason's right there. Just so you know, this is this Sunday was the last Sunday that he'll be perf- that he'll be leading our music. So I thought maybe it'd be nice just today at least to just show him your appreciation by a nice warm round of applause. We will send them off uh, in a in a good way when they stop attending here, which will be sometime in October when they finally make their move and find another uh, body to serve in. But uh, that'll be next week. Thomas, right there in the middle, he's uh, the one that wears a shirt like mine. (laughs) Uh, That's how you can identify him very easily. (laughs) He'll be leading our music. We're so thankful to God for him and that God led us to him and thankful for him and his wife that will be attending here from here on out. Uh, until God sees to do other things, and they'll be leading. They'll be leading our worship starting next week. So we're really excited about that. So we are in First John. Let's move into the Word together. First John chapter three, as we move through this great book of the Bible, page one thousand twenty-two. Page one thousand twenty-two in those blue Bibles. If you're using one of those. This is actually part two. We started this message. I started this message two weeks ago. We had a break last week because we celebrated our two-year anniversary. So this is part two to that message. So I would encourage you, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, to listen to that message so that you get the full picture. I'll, I'll I'll review the first two points very briefly, and then we'll move into the rest of the text. I called this message Irreconcilable Differences, Irreconcilable Differences, just to remind you, irreconcilable means not capable of being made to agree or coexist with something else. Okay, And you know that term, irreconcilable differences, is, is often used in divorce settings. Two couples say, we just flat out can't get along. It's really can't come together peacefully is the idea. Another word that you could use for irreconcilable is incompatible. Incompatible. Okay? And basically what I've been trying to do from John's text is show you that John is basically saying sin and the Christian, the child of God, because that's what a Christian is. A Christian is a child of God. They have become a child of God. Those two things, sin and the child of God, they are irreconcilable. They are irreconcilable. They are incompatible. They cannot live together peacefully. Why? You know, why can't they just get along? You know, why can't they just work things out? Can't the two sin and the child of God come to some type of compromise where they can coexist? (laughs) Well, last week or two weeks ago, we looked at the first reason. In your bulletins, the first two reasons are there. The first reason that the sin and the Christian are irreconcilable is sin, John tells us, is lawlessness. It's lawlessness. We looked at that last couple weeks ago. That means it's rebellion. It's rebellion. Sin is not just a, a mistake. An accident, just a matter of falling a little short of the perfect standard. It is is that. It is falling short of the perfect standard. But it's more than that. Sin is rebellion. It's insurrection against God who rules and reigns over His creation. Beloved, a child of God is, is no longer a person who lives in rebellion to their Lord, to their Creator. So the first reason that sin and the Christian are irreconcilable is sin is rebellion. It's rebellion. We have moved out of the category of rebels to children, to children of a loving father. Second reason was Jesus was and is opposed to sin. Sin and the Christian are reconcilable because Jesus was and is opposed to sin. As we read through the text, you'll be reminded of this. Jesus came to take away sins. To take away sins. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Now listen. Christians are followers of who? Christ. 
Yeah, that's what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. They're a disciple of Christ. You know what that means? That means they're a pupil or a student or a learner of Jesus Christ. So think about this with me. Here is Jesus Christ, the one who is sinless, the one who does not sin, the one who remains perfect and holy, the one who came to this earth, left the glory of His Father in the heavens to come to earth. For what purpose? To take away sins. To destroy the works of the devil. To remove not only the penalty of sin, but its power and bondage that it has over people. We as followers of Jesus, disciples, pupils, learners of Jesus, if that's what we are, and that is what we are for Christians, how then can we be cool with sin? How can we be okay with it? We can't. We can't because Jesus was and is flat out, absolutely opposed in the strongest way to sin. Based on the message two weeks ago, someone asked me if a backsliding Christian is possible. Okay, so they wrote it on the back of their connection card and they said, you know, based on what you were saying, is that possible for a Christian to be a backslider? Let me say this. It is difficult for me to, to answer that question without first defining what with what backsliding means, because I've heard it defined in different ways. One way, have you ever heard that word backsliding, by the way? Okay. One way I've heard it defined, there's probably a way you could define it where it's probably possible then in, in that definition that a Christian is, can backslide, but that's, that's a, very sm- a definition I don't hear very often. In fact, the one I hear, the way it's, it's put with a person, when they say, oh, that's a backsliding Christian is when a person claims to be a Christian, they say, hey, I'm a Christian, but they live like an unbeliever. They live like a non-Christian. So by that I mean there's, there is no substantial evidence in their life of a desire to really follow Christ. No substantial evidence. It's not really there. You know, to live for God to pursue the life that God has called His people to through His Word. And additionally, I would say that God's Word, when I say God's Word, I'm referring to this book, these 66 books collected that we call the Bible, God's Word and His church. His church, not a building, but the people of God gathered together to worship Him, celebrate Him, and proclaim Him. His Word and His church just doesn't have that big of a priority in that person's life. Okay? And beyond that, their overall attitude towards sin is one of excuse-making and tolerance. Now, I've heard people define a backsliding Christian that way. Okay. So is it biblical then to believe that a person as I've just defined them? No. Well, hold on, don't answer yet. Is it, and don't answer out loud, because I just want you to think. This is designed to challenge you and to challenge the common thinking that exists, even among Christians. Is it biblical then to say the person that I just defined to you is truly a Christian, they're just a, a backsliding Christian? Beloved, let's do this. Let's let the Word of God, and that alone, inform our thinking, inform our opinion, help us establish the answer to that question. It's important. Don't let your experience, don't let what your brother told you, your mama told you, none of that. Set that aside for just a moment. Let the Word of God affect you so that you might answer that question right now. Because it's an important one. People are deceived when it comes to this area. All right, so let's do that now. Let's look at God's Word, that perfect Word, beginning and I'm going to start at verse 28 like I have now a couple of times because I believe this is kind of a unit here. I want you to get the context of chapter 2, of chapter 2, and I'm going to read all the way to chapter 10, but we're just going to look at verses 4 through 10 this morning. All right, beginning in chapter 2, 28, and now... Little children, John says, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness 
has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. This morning, if you have a bulletin on the inside, left side of that bulletin, you'll see this note here. This is kind of telling you where we're going this morning. We're basically going to consider the final two of the four reasons we started looking at two weeks ago. We're going to consider the last two of why the children of God cannot tolerate sin in their lives so that we will necessarily refuse to condone it or coexist with it, live peacefully with it, with it. The two reasons we're going to look at this morning are because of their personal relationship with Jesus, and number four, because of who they are born of. That's where we're going. Let's begin with number three, because of their personal relationship with Jesus. And we just read it, but I want to read it again because it's so good. And I'm really focusing in on verse six but I want to read the verses around it again just so you feel the the weight and the heaviness and the strength and the context of this passage here. Beginning in verse 5, look in at God's Word. Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 3. It says, You know that He appeared, that is Jesus, to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. He is the sinless one. He is the holy one. No one, verse 6, who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The Apostle John here allows no exceptions. I want you to see this. He allows no exceptions when he uses the phrase, no one. No one in verse 6. Notice he does not say, okay, there's some, there's some who abide in him, but, They keep living like unbelievers. They continue to rebel against God. They continue a pattern, a life pattern of sin. Does the text say that? He doesn't say that. He doesn't even make an exception for it. He says no one. Let me say what he is saying in a slightly different way. No one who keeps on sinning abides in him, nor have they seen him or known him. No one. 
Let me say it this way. No one who abides in Him or has seen Him or known Him keeps on sinning. No one. That's verse 6. That's what John is saying. But John, what about such and such? I mean, he says he's a Christian. He, he, he comes to the synagogue or comes to the church and he, he's with us every Sunday and he's part of... But he, he still lives in, in rebellion, really. No one. There are no exceptions. And John goes on to say, listen, let no one deceive you about this. Let no one trick you. Let no one mislead you in this regard. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, that person is not a child of God, regardless of what they might say or what they might claim. Period. In fact, listen, John doesn't stop there. He goes further. And he says, they're of the devil. Because a pattern of unbroken sin or rebellion against God's absolute rule over a life and the absence of true righteousness, those things, beloved, are characteristic of the devil and his rebellious life. So, John says, listen, They are of the devil in the sense that their lives imitate the evil one, not the holy one. Not the holy one. Now listen to me, because this this might confuse you, so I don't want to do that. This doesn't mean that when when John is saying they're of the devil, that doesn't mean they're Satan worshippers. That's not what he's saying. It also doesn't mean that they're possessed by Satan. That's not what John is saying. He's simply simply saying they imitate their behavior, their pattern of life is imitating Satan. They're imitating Satan. How could they be a child of God? They're not. They're of the devil. And this, beloved, could simply be people who refuse to live under God's rule by submitting to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so this could be Grandma. This could be Grandma who is sweet and wonderful and makes great cookies. But she refuses to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. She is living in rebellion against God. John would say she is of the devil. She is living a life of sin. See, we hear living a life of sin, we think, you know, murderer, rapist, thief, right? All of that is certainly sin. But remember, we defined sin a couple of weeks ago. John defined it. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion. Sin is insurrection. Sin is to look at God and say, No! I will not come under you. And we do that, people do that, when they refuse to bow to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Messiah, to His anointed and appointed King. When they refuse to do that, they're living in rebellion. They're acting like the devil. People, beloved, want ultimate authority over their lives. They don't want to answer to anyone. They don't want to answer to their Creator. They don't want to answer to the Lord Jesus. That's Satan. Satan wants to be a God unto himself. Satan doesn't want to answer to his Creator. Satan doesn't want to bow his knee to Jesus. Satan lives in perpetual rebellion. Now, someone might suggest this, that saying someone is of the devil sounds rather harsh or judgmental or unloving. Okay? But maybe it would help to know that Jesus Christ spoke in a very similar way. 
I think people are confused about Jesus Christ. I think they think he was just a guy walking around because of pictures they've seen that he just holds children laughing all day. That's not the Jesus Christ of the Gospels. Oh, he loved children. Don't know if he laughed. I assume he did, but I don't find it in the Scriptures. I just don't see him that way. In fact, he was on a mission. And he was serious about his mission. He was a serious man. And he said some serious things. Strong things. Let me show you. Let me show you one. Flip back to the left. We're going to flip to the John. Okay, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The fourth gospel. The same man, the apostle, who wrote 1 John and 2 John and 3 John and Revelation also wrote this gospel, the gospel of John. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was an authorized representative of Jesus Christ. He was an apostle. And he recorded the life of Christ in this book called the Gospel of John. Now we're going to look at John 8. John 8. If you're using one of those blue Bibles, you can flip to page 894. I want you to just see this with your own eyes. Now listen. Here's the little bit of the context. Jesus is speaking, and he says something about abiding in him. Abiding in Him and His Word. And if you abide in Him and His Word, you will truly be set free. Truly be set free. And so those who were listening, the Jews, said, what are you talking about, set free? Now I'm paraphrasing, okay? I'm not reading, I'm just giving you the context. What are you talking about being set free? We've never been enslaved. We are descendants of Abraham. Which is funny that they said that because they were actually under bondage in the fact that Rome was ruling over them. But in a general sense, they're saying, listen, we are, we are children of Abraham. Who, why do we need to be set free? Okay, that's the context. Then picking up in verse 37, Jesus comes back to that. He'll come back to that, that, what they just said about them being free and being descendants of Abraham. And he says in verse 37 of chapter 8, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know that you are his descendants, as Jewish people. Yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word, my word, what I'm saying, finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my Father. Who's he talking about? God. And you do what you have heard from your Father. They answered him, Abraham is our father in the sense that we're descended from him. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. What did Abraham do? Abraham in faith followed after God. Abraham in faith submitted his life to God. Not a perfect man, but a man that followed after God. So he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. You would be listening to me. You would be listening to God. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Verse 41. You are doing the works your father did. He says it again. They still don't get it. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. And that's curious. We don't know this for sure, but some, some commentators suggest that what they're saying there, we're not born of sexual immorality, is they're making a swipe at Jesus because there's questions about exactly whose daddy, who's, who is Jesus' daddy. So maybe he was born outside of wedlock or something. They're, they're not sure. Maybe she had an affair, right? Those, those rumors are circulating. Who exactly is Jesus' daddy? He was born out of sexual immorality. That's the suggestion, the rumor. So they think it's maybe a slight at him. I don't know. But he says, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father. Now they're going to raise the bar even higher. I mean, our father's Abraham. We descend from him. You know what? What are you talking about? Who are fathers? We have one father. That's God. Oh, okay. That's God's your father, so you're children of God? Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Jesus will answer his own question. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Verse 44. 
You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. We read about that in Genesis this morning. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, listen, beloved, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are, what does it say? You are not of God. Now, this is what I want you to understand. These words were spoken in the temple, in a religious place, to religious people. Do you understand? He's not, he's not in some jail cell somewhere going, you are of the devil because you guys are a bunch of murderers and stuff like that and because you're just filled with crime. That's not who he's speaking to. He's speaking to religious Jews who are refusing Jesus Christ who ultimately will send him to a cross to murder him. And he's saying to those religious people, moral people probably, externally, you're of the devil. You're not of God. So John is speaking in a very similar way here in 1 John chapter 3, just as his master did. Back to our text. Let's break down verse 6 a little bit, okay? Verse 6. Let me read it again for you. Verse 6. Look at the text back in 1 John, page 1022. John says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, or known him. The identity of him in the context is clearly Jesus Christ, okay? Because in verse 5, that's the verse that comes right before verse 6, John says that you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Who's that? Come on, that's Jesus. That's obviously Jesus. Jesus is the one that actually manifested himself, appeared before us, and he appeared for the purpose of taking away sins. So it's obviously Jesus. Then John says, no one who abides in him, that is the one who appeared to take away sins, keeps on sinning. So him is Jesus. Let's just set that up from the get-go. Now in relation to Jesus or to him, John uses three phrases. Abides in him, seen him, and known him. Okay? Now the words abide, seen, and known are all really getting at the same thing or they're communicating the same general idea. They are words that describe the reality of a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Did you hear me? Abides, seen, known. They are all, these phrases are all phrases designed to describe a person who has a real relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's look at them individually, quickly. Abide in Him. Abide in Him. That means to continually dwell, or as one translation says it, live. Live in Him. So this implies an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. To abide in Jesus is to continually dwell in Jesus. Live with Jesus in a spiritual sense. Seeing Him. That's another phrase. Now this one is a little more tricky. When you hear the word seeing Him or this phrase, I want you to think, because you can understand it this way, to discern clearly, physically, or mentally, or to become aware of or conscious of, to understand. So for instance, if I say to you, so I can say I saw him, it could be a physical sense, but it can also be a discerning or an understanding in a mental sense. So for instance, if I say to you, do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? I'm asking, do you, are you discerning? Are you understanding? Are you aware now of what I'm saying? Right? That's the idea, I believe, that's being used here because it could hardly mean, John could hardly mean that he's talking about seeing Jesus physically while he was on earth. He could hardly mean that because then he would be reducing this to a very select group of people. Okay? This is written many years after Jesus is already gone, but he's saying... 
those who have seen him, he's not talking about, because he's writing to everyone, this applies to everyone, so he can't possibly be talking about just people who physically saw Jesus. He must be talking about something else. And I think he's using it, I believe he's using it the same way that he uses it in, in 3 John, which is just a couple of books over, verse 11. And there he says this, Beloved, same idea going on. Here's John right back at it again in 3 John. Beloved, loved ones, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. You see that word seen? Same word, okay? This implies, this verse implies that those who do good those who imitate good then have seen God. Have seen God. But wait a minute. John tells us in his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 18, that no one has seen God physically, with physical eyes, not in all of his glory. So in what sense then can John be suggesting here and making clear in 3 John that someone has seen God, or as we look here in John, 1 John 3, 6, has seen Jesus Christ without physically seeing Him. Well, I believe what's intended is this. Those who have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ have that relationship because to some degree they have seen Jesus for who He really is. They have discerned Him clearly. They have become conscious of or aware of his reality. They, they have, if you will, have been granted eyes of faith. Eyes of faith. As a result, they understand and believe him to be the divine Son of God and their necessary Savior. And they have embraced him and accepted him as their Lord. And when they do that, it results in a change in the direction of their life because they have seen him. One writer says this, seeing here is a spiritual vision of him through faith. A spiritual vision of him through faith. You can look up Ephesians 1.18 later and Hebrews 11.27 to see the same idea being expressed in different ways of seeing with eyes of faith. Not seeing physically, but seeing or discerning or seeing Jesus for who he really is or God for who he really is. Beloved, for those who have a saving relationship with Jesus, here's what's happened. The veil that blinded their eyes has been removed. It's been removed. It's been lifted. And as Paul says, they are now able to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. And it's interesting, in 2 Corinthians 4, He's talking about there, and that when I just took that verse from there, he's talking about the God of this world, Satan, who has actually blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But that is not so for the child of God, for the believer. That veil has been lifted, and they see with spiritual eyes, they see and discern Jesus for who he really is. And beloved, that has an impact. That has an impact on their life. When you see Jesus for who He really is, when you can discern Him as Lord and Creator and God and King, Sovereign. You understand me? You understand what I'm saying? You can't, John is saying, you can't say you've seen Him and not be impacted by that. I mean, I was just, I was reviewing some material last night for a, for a possible uh, thing we can do, evangelistic kind of program. I'm just sitting on the couch, I'm watching this DVD, and all the guy's doing is he's taking you back through Mark, and he begins to talk about Jesus. He begins to talk about Jesus being the healer, his power over disease. He begins to talk about Jesus being, uh, having power over 
over nature as he calms that sea, just speaks to it, and it's calm. He talks about his authority as a teacher, where he, he speaks not like the rabbis speak, but he speaks with authority as he teaches. And beloved, for me as a child of God, just sitting there on the couch, I, got, I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed. Like, that's, that's my Jesus. You see, he's unbelievable. He's awesome. He's the sovereign one. And someone else can hear all that stuff, and they go, yeah, okay, whatever. Just a story about a guy. But for the child of God, they've seen Jesus. They hear things about him. They respond. They are impacted. Because the veil has been lifted. They see the glory of Christ. Third, known him. Known him. The word here implies, that's the third phrase, the word here implies more than just a head knowledge of Jesus, right? He says, listen, those who keep practicing sin, they don't. They have not known him. So what is he talking about? Does he mean they don't know about him? Like, you know, they don't know that he existed? That's not what it means. He's not talking about they're not aware that Jesus existed or they don't know enough facts about Jesus. Rather, as one writer says, the word, the word here, known him, it means a, listen, personal, intimate, experiential knowledge of Christ, of Jesus Christ. So what the word known here really communicates is a knowledge of Jesus that is based on a close and personal relationship with him. Okay? So I, I might know somebody, I know stuff about them, I know kind of who they are, but this is different. This is now I know them because I have a personal and intimate relationship with them, like my wife. I know her. I know her. I know her by the fact that I have a personal relationship, close, tight relationship with her. That's what John is saying. Now, let me summarize this. A person who abides in Jesus, okay, that means they live and dwell in Him, they draw their spiritual life from this one. A person that has seen Him, the veil has been lifted, they understand and believe Him to be who He truly is. They see Him in His glory. And a person who has known Him, they have entered into a personal and intimate relationship with Him, this one being the perfect, sinless one, the holy one, the one who is absolutely opposed to sin, is consequently a person who can no longer, beloved, tolerate sin in their lives and therefore will not be able to just go on practicing sin as a way of life, but they will fight. They will fight against their sin. They will confess it. They will repent of it. They will turn from it, and they will begin to practice the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Will they fail and still sin? Yes but they will continue to fight against their sin. Why? Because of that relationship with Christ. And because of that, they can and will, beloved, incrementally achieve, and this is glorious, victory over their sin. Will they have setbacks? Do Christians have setbacks in this area? Yeah, beloved. Of course they will have setbacks, but they won't be permanent setbacks. They can't be permanent setbacks that result in a life that is characterized by a blatant disregard for Jesus Christ and His rule over their lives. And it won't be characterized by a life now that condones sin instead of condemning sin. It can't be. I don't see how that's possible. I don't see how that's possible in light of God's Word. By the way, we're not going to look at this passage this morning, but something you can look at on your own. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, there the writer says that God takes an active role in His children specifically in the area of their holiness. And that active role includes discipline. Discipline. And in fact, the writer says this. He talks about discipline. He says, listen, our, our fathers disciplined us 
as best they knew how for, for our good. They, don't, they definitely didn't do it perfectly. But they did the best they could. But our Father in heaven disciplines us for our holiness. That we might share in His holiness. And then he goes on, he says there, and in fact, if you have no discipline in your life, if you haven't experienced the discipline of God, what that demonstrates is you're not His child. You're not His child. See, God saves you with the purpose of making you holy. He is absolutely opposed to sin. And as your good and heavenly and loving Father, He works in your life. He'll do whatever it takes. And if He has to bring you down, He'll bring you down that you might repent and turn back to Him and come to your senses and repent of your sin and get back on course. The one who can continue in sin has no problem, la, 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 no discipline from God. Oh, they might have a messed up life, but don't confuse that with God's discipline. They've got a messed up life because they're sinning. And the consequences of sin is a messed up life. That's not the same thing as God's discipline. That person, they're not a child of God. That's what the Bible says. They don't know Him. They haven't seen Jesus Christ. They don't abide in Him. One writer says, it doesn't make sense to think that God would offer up His Son for our redemption and then just abandon us along the way. I mean, that's what you'd have to believe. Think about that. So God offers up His Son to save us from the penalty of sin sometime in the future. But while you're here on earth, I'm just going to let you continue to go on living in sin. Just do whatever you want. Really? Does that sound like God? It's not. It's not biblical. It's not a biblical concept of God at all. No, God is opposed to sin. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to take away sin, to break its power, its bondage over the believer. He doesn't want it to be part of our life. He disciplines His children. Why? Because He's an ogre? No, because sin is destructive. Sin ruins us. It destroys us. It takes away the life that we should have. So He disciplines us that we might share in His holiness. That's love, beloved. That's love. One writer says this. Actually, this is right in those study Bibles, you know. This is John MacArthur. Here's his note, little note. I just wanted to bring it out on this passage. He says, If no check against habitual sin exists in someone who professes to be a Christian, John's pronouncement is absolutely clear. Salvation never took place. If there is no effort, let me say it this way, if there is no effort in your life to put a stop to sin in your life, no effort, then how can you say you have a personal relationship with the sinless one who came to earth to take away sins, to break sin's power over the believer and remove sin now in this life from your life? How can you say that? You really can't. That's what John is saying. The Christian can no longer tolerate sin in their lives, beloved. They cannot condone it or coexist with it because of their unique relationship with Jesus Christ. Will they struggle with sin? Hear me now. Because these are like, you know, these are strong statements John is making. And people can walk out here and go, oh man, I, I don't know anymore. I don't know, even know who I am. Can Christians struggle with sin? Can they sometimes condone it in their life? Yeah, they do, beloved. They do. It's tragic. I do. We will struggle as children of God. We will struggle with sin until we die or until the Lord returns. But let me be clear. For the Christian, for the child of God, it is a struggle. It is a struggle. It is not a truce with sin. It is not a put up the white flag, open your doors, lay out the welcome mat, come on in. It is a, let me pull out my 45, let me, let me, you know, I thought that was for you, Tony. Let me pull out my shotgun, let me bear up the walls, let me, let me put up reinforcements, let me fight against this thing. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it in my life. I don't want it. 
I fight against it. That's the child of God. Those who do condone or ignore or overlook and coexist, they, they peacefully live together with their sin. According to John, according to John, beloved, according to the Word of God, those who condone it or coexist with it just forever, just as a way of life, they do not abide in Jesus Christ, nor have they seen Him or known Him, nor do they have a saving relationship with Him. That's the point. That's the point. And remember, John, this whole context is set in a, in a picture of these false teachers, these men and women that were part of the church originally, but now have separated themselves from the church, yet they claim to be Christians, and it appears that they're making claims that it doesn't matter how you live your life. That doesn't matter. That, that's no big deal. You can sin. You can disobey the commandments of Christ. That's okay. And John is saying, no. Don't think for a second they're Christians. Because no Christian would speak like that. No Christian would live like that. No Christian would promote such nonsense. The Christian is opposed to sin because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. And they do battle against it. One writer just says this, You can't be connected to the person and work of Christ and not have your relationship to sins dramatically changed. I think that's right. Beloved, we can't be connected to Jesus Christ and and not have any impact on our relationship to sins. That doesn't make sense. And if that's the case for you, you're not connected to Jesus Christ. If there's been no change with your relationship to sin, you're not connected. You can't be. It is our relationship with Jesus that consequently has an impact on our relationship with sin. You know, here I am out of time again, but that's how it is. Influence of friends. You know, parents know this, right? Just a quick illustration, just to drive this home a little more. We're so concerned, and rightfully so, who our kids spend time with, who our kids have relationships with. Is that not right? Why? Well, we love them, but why? Well, well, we we know one way or another... That friend, that relationship will have an impact on their life. It will influence them in one way or another. So our hope, our desire is that they would have good and tight relationships with those that would have a positive influence on their life. And we expect that that's going to happen, right? So tell me, beloved, how is it that someone could say you could have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Not just another human being, but the divine Son of God, the sovereign Creator, and that not have an impact on your life. That's not possible. We know that's not possible. And yet some people live that way. Why can't the true Christian tolerate sin? Because sin is rebellion against God. Because Jesus was and is opposed to sin. Because Christians have a personal relationship with Jesus. And finally, because of who they are born of. That's the final point. Because of who they are born of. Look back at the text with me. 1 John 3, 9. It says here, John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So simple. John makes it so clear, doesn't he? There's no reason for us as believers to be confused about this issue. There's no reason for anybody to be confused about this issue. Again, John makes no exceptions here when he writes, No one. No one. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, whose life is characterized now by an unwillingness, an unwillingness to break with their sin, a persistent pattern of defiance, no repentance, cannot at the same time truthfully claim, John says, to be born of God. Why? Because the one born of God cannot keep on sinning because God's very seed abides in Him, indwells Him, or as one translation says, remains in Him, in all those born of God. Now this seed has commonly been understood as the new life that is given to everyone born of God by the Holy Spirit. Something supernatural takes place when a person becomes a child of God. The Holy Spirit gives them life, a new life, and indwells them. 
God's seed abides in them. And because of that, John says, they can't keep sinning. They can't keep living in rebellion. John defines two groups of people. Again, just two, not three. There are those born of God and there are those that are not. He doesn't say there are those born of God that can also just go on and sinning. He doesn't have two categories for those people. He says there are those born of God. Here's how you know they're born of God. They do not continue to practice sin. There are these over here. They are not born of God. How do I know? They continue to practice sin. That's how I can tell them apart. Again, beloved, this does not mean that the Christian will never again commit an act of sin. How could it possibly mean that? We know it doesn't mean that because 1 John 1, 8 through 10 and and 1 John 2, verse 1, in this same letter, John talks about the reality of sin or the Christian sinning and confession and repentance in regard to those things. But it does mean this. Listen, it does mean this that the true child of God will no longer be able to tolerate sin as they did before, before they became a Christian. And as a result, they will want to turn from it. And because of, because of the reality that God's very seed abides in them, the divine life, they then have the power and the desire. That's key. The Spirit-influenced desire to do just that, turn from sin. Turn from sin. One writer says this, a couple quotes for you. The new birth involves a radical change. The new birth is what happens to Christians when they are born again, when they become followers of Jesus Christ, when they put their trust and faith in Him and Him alone. The new birth involves a radical change in human nature. For those who have not experienced it, the new birth, sin is natural, normal, Whereas for those who have experienced it, the new birth, sin is unnatural. So unnatural indeed that its practice constitutes or establishes a powerful refutation or denial of any claim to possess the divine life. You understand what he's saying? It is so unnatural now for the Christian. Sin is so unnatural because of all these things that John is explaining here. That for a Christian to just go on living in sin is a powerful denial of the claim that they make to be possessors of the divine life, to be children of God. One writer says, Whatever is born of God must share God's character. That's John's point. God's seed abides in them. They must share God's character and his opposition to sin. God is holy. God is righteous. God hates sin. God hates rebellion. One more. The urge not to sin implanted by the new birth reflects the nature and purpose of God to eliminate sin. See, that urge that the Christian has not to sin, that's implanted there by the new birth. That's implanted there because they're children of God by that seed that indwells them. And that reflects the nature and the purpose of God to eliminate sin from the Christian's life. Let me illustrate this quickly. It says, well, I'm saying, I I was reading this stuff. You know, people are always looking for, well, people, scientists, are looking for evidence of life somewhere else, right? Other than earth. I just look for it on earth sometimes. I don't know, where's life? I don't know. But they look for it on other planets and they look for something. I was reading this article. They look for biomarkers. Biomarkers. You know the word bio? Like we talk about biology. That's the study of living organisms. Or we talk about a biography. That's a story about someone's life. Or a biosphere. That's a container that someone can live in, have life, sustain life. So a biomarker then is a, a marker that indicates that there's life. It's an indicator of life. So they call them biomarkers. And they say that there's evidence, they, they have a way that they can look on a planet and they try to see if, if there's an evidence of certain combination of gases in certain ratios or in a certain balance that can only exist in the presence of life, such as molecular oxygen and methane. 
Okay, so they, somehow they can look at this, analyze this, and they're trying to look onto the planet. They haven't found any yet, but they're looking onto the other planets, and they say, if we find this particular mix of biomarkers, these particular gases, we know something. We know that that can only exist in that type of uh, situation when life is present. Here's what John is saying. The divine biomarkers for the Christian. What must exist to demonstrate, to prove that divine life exists. The proofs is an intolerance for sin that leads to confession, repentance, and the practice of righteousness. Those are divine biomarkers. That's what he's saying. If you don't see these things, then there's no reason to assume that life exists, that God indwells that person. Now, do we do that in perfection? Do we, do we have an intolerance for sin perfectly? Do we confess and repent of our sin perfectly every time, always? Do we practice righteousness without fail? Any of you? Any of you? I'm looking for Jesus. He's not here. Any of you? No. But it is the pattern of our life. It will be the pattern of the Christian's life. And one day it will be the perfection of their life when Jesus comes again. And I see Him just as He is. And I'm made like Him. So as we come to the end of this section, John simply concludes the matter in verse 10. I'll read it quickly. And he really prepares us for the next theme that we're going to be looking at more fully next week. That is loving one another, which is in reality another characteristic of being born of God. Another divine biomarker. He says in 1 John 3.10, Listen by this, it is evident. This is... This is how we know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Only two groups in the world. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Whoever continues in a lifestyle of sin, rebellion, rejecting Christ, has no interest for the things of God, doesn't care about His Word, doesn't care about the church, lives as they want to live, lives as they're their own authority, they're not of God. And nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then John will begin to expand upon that as we look at the verses following 1 John 3.10. And we'll look at that next week. Beloved, because sin is rebellion against God, because Jesus was and is opposed to sin, because the Christian has a personal relationship with Jesus, because the Christian has been born of God, God's seed literally abides in Him, they must not, they cannot condone or coexist with sin. The Christian and sin are irreconcilable. Let's pray. Father, just have your way with us, I pray. I pray that your word would alter us. I pray that it would change us. I know that it does that. I've seen that already happen in my life. I pray it would continue to do that in our lives. Father, there are some here who I would imagine have no biomarkers of divine life. They really still live in rebellion because they have not bowed their knee to Jesus Christ. They have not given Him their life. They have not come and recognized Him as Lord. They do not abide in Him, nor have they seen Him, nor have they known Him. They have no intimate relationship with with him, They may know about Him. They may know lots of facts. They may know He existed. They may have heard all the stories. But their life remains the same. Father, I pray, I plead, I beg. For their good, for Your glory, that You would save them. That You would break through their rebellion that you would remove the veil that blinds their eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ. 
that you would reach in and draw them to yourself, that they might bow, that they might receive, that they might open their arms to Jesus Christ and recognize Him for all that He is and receive Him as their Savior and their Lord and then be born again and then be given the power and the desire to live differently and so they will for your glory and their good. Father, for those of us who know You, I take great encouragement in these words from John because what it means is if I am a child of God, these will be a reality in my life. I will break with sin. I will practice righteousness, not because I have any strength or power within myself, but because You, God, abide in me. Christ lives in me. And because of that and that alone, I now have new desires. And I have a strength I didn't have before. And I have a power I didn't have before that I can now say no to sin. I can say no to it. And oh, how desperate I need to say no to it because it only seeks to kill and destroy me. I can break with it. Oh, that gives me hope. Father, continue to work in Your people that they might look more and more like Your Son. It is in your name we pray. Amen.